Hello and welcome to the Dash Podcast. Joining me today is Mr. Chris Reese. He's the assistant principal in DeKalb County, Georgia. I'm your host, Trey Gamage, and this episode is sponsored by the Gamage Consulting Group. We help middle school principals support student behavior. You want to spend more time delivering feedback your teachers can use, less time documenting behavior incidents, and more time empowering your educators to be the best version of themselves. You can schedule a time to talk with me now at treygamers.com shop to learn more about our five-step leadership and teacher support services. Or you can find the link in the episode description. Without further ado, I have Mr. Reese here joining me. It sounds like we already have um, some great things going on. Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, sir. So there's a, a few things we want to get into today, and I, I kind of want to start with class climbing. It sounds like that's something that you're passionate about and how the, the what you say, culture drives instruction. Can you break that down a little bit for me? Sure. Um, one of the conversations that have been uh, pretty apparent in educational policy and in teacher preparation programs is deciding whether or not the way we prepare teachers effectively meets the needs of students. Mm. And uh, one of the historical um, ideologies that aligned with that was to look at what kind of education a teacher has, what are their own cultural experiences, and how have they evolved from those experiences. Um, I like to look at it in a different light, though. Uh, I, I was one of those individuals that I started out as an education major, and um, the second day of class, the teacher gave us this assignment that had something to do with coloring. And I was a secondary education history major, and I just mm -hmm. thought, this is the wrong way to start out class, to prepare me to teach high school with a coloring assignment. Mm. So I quickly went to uh, my advisor's office, told him I was not going to major in education and that I wanted to be a sociologist. I had taken a class that previous semester in sociology. And it was my experience that moving from sociology to political science, having degrees in both, that I knew the content. Mm. And the content was what I used to drive instruction in my class. But when it came to culture, it wasn't what I learned in the classroom that prepared me for that. It's the experiences that my students have aligned themselves parallel with the experiences that I had. Mm. I grew up in a very similar community. I identify with their struggles, with their issues, and that is what drove um, the climate in my classroom. So there was a lot of respect. There was a lot of uh, give and take. There was a lot of compromise. Um, yeah. Um, so that we could do what we needed to do and learn the material that we needed to learn. Yeah. And so um, I do not believe that we are stuck in this box where a teacher's experience can only be driven by what they evolve from. It can mm -hmm. also be driven by what they've struggled in. Uh, I always say the best math teacher will be the one who struggled in it. Because <laughs> uh, they learned the strategies that they need yeah. um, in order to teach it properly. So that creates the culture that schools need um, in order to succeed. Well, and so how did that, I love that. I, I haven't heard um, that kind of philosophy before, you know, and thinking about how your, your personal experience can connect with your student's experience. So what about a teacher though? 1% um, of educators are black males. Mm -hmm. So if, if we're, you know, so yourself, myself, we're in the minority in the classroom, what can, um, say, a white male teacher, a white female teacher, how can they make some of those same kind of connections if they don't have a similar experience in the classroom? There, is there... there? There is a divide that can exist where appreciation can be enough. Uh, mm -hmm. Having appreciation for the struggle in which students 
uh, experience or the disparities that they uh, encounter can be enough to develop strong relationships. It is also imperative to note that if you are in a space where you're teaching and your experience does not align with those around you, you have to merge yourself into that culture till it becomes a part of your story. So now to see a student speak to you about homelessness, even though you have, may not have never been homeless before, that has to become a part of your narrative. Yeah. Point where it doesn't sound strange to hear it. You know mm-hmm. how to address it without being anxious about it. You know exactly what resources might be out there, who to reach out to. And so, you know, it, I'm not saying that the only persons who can identify are those who've been through it. But if you have not been through it, you have to have enough yeah. all to have the agency to go out and do what you need to do to become a part of the narrative. And we're right. That, that's powerful. That's really strong. Well, can you give me some examples about um, how you've been able to use your experiences in the classroom with your children? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, I was teaching younger students prior to coming to high school. And um, so I had this group of students who were in my literacy class that did not understand multiplication. Didn't make sense to them. And I am not a math major, not a math person. Right. What's my thing? I struggled in it myself. So I told one of the uh, fourth grade math teachers um, who had been teaching a remediation class for students who were supposed to learn multiplication in third grade um, that I had some ideas. And these ideas were not uh, rooted in any pedagogical training that I had because, mm-hmm. and all of my experiences have been within political science, sociology, literacy-based things. And so I said, I'm going to identify with two things that I remember. I'm a musician. And so if I hear sound or if I can at least put movement to um, memorization, then I'm probably going to be able to at least spit out the facts that I've memorized. Mm -hmm. I remember my first grade teacher, who is the reason why I'm an educator, tying two jump ropes together, taking us outside and saying, "Okay, we're going to go through our multiplication facts and all of you are going to jump in as a group. And you don't have to get out if the jump rope hits you. You have to get out if you miss the answer. Mm. And that was just one small strategy. Let's try that. That sounds fun. The kids are going to identify with it. If they can get some movement, if they can get this going, maybe this might spark something. Um, I also remember this little box where we had numbers on the left and numbers on the top column. And you could look from the row to the column to decide in multiplication which one where they meet is the answer. So those small strategies that I used growing up gave me enough exposure to say, okay, I get it. You don't understand math. I, like you, were afraid of mathematics, not because I can't do it, but because I've always had this underlying anxiety that I cannot explain that you now have and I identify with. Let me take some of the strategies that helped me Mm. and see if they help you. Mm. And... Yeah, that changed their trajectories. So are you, are you explicitly talking to your students like, hey, this is what happened in my life. So you're kind of embedding your personal story, who you are in your classroom lessons to, to, make, to make it real. You're making something abstract like math, concrete through experiences that your students can relate to. Exactly. And, you know, you could push further in the conversation and say to them, you know, um, I'm going to put, I want to know what three times three is. And we know what the answer is. Now I'm going to put an X next to this three and put an equal sign and tell you what the answer is. How can we use this operation to look the same as though you what you know versus what you need to know? Mm. And 
um, students identify with that well because um, I told a math teacher a long time ago, and this is an excellent point, um, that still penetrates my mentality of thinking. Uh, we start out telling them that multiplication is an X. Then they go up a few grades and they say, no, it's not an X, it's a dot. Mm. Then we take away the dot and say, no, it's the number outside of the parentheses and the one inside of the parentheses, now that's multiplication. And so you keep changing. Same thing with division. We tell them, oh, well, it's a line with two yeah. dots, one over, one under. Now, mm. put a number on top of a number and put a line in the middle. No, put a number beside a slash or a dash, and then you know that slash is the number behind it is going to be the number we're dividing by. Then we're going to change it again. We're going to put it inside half of a box. So it keeps changing. Wow. Expect them to have this continuity across their understanding of the content. Mind you, I'm not a math educator. Yeah. This makes sense to me, and I'm confused, and I had to struggle with this. No wonder they don't get it. No wonder there's anxiety. Because <laughs> we keep changing the rules when we need to look for uh, some synthesis in our approach and our delivery. Wow, that's interesting too. The goodness, you, you're, you're dropping all kinds of gems. I haven't thought about that either. Did the X and the dot, you're right. There's a lot of ways to multiply. And, and kid, I remember working with a student that was like, I don't know how to divide this. Like, what do you mean? Like, it's, you know, it's the line box with a half of a line. But uh -huh. that makes sense because what they learned in previous year was probably, you know, the, the other division symbol or whatever. Wow, that, <laughs> that's interesting. That, so that, that might go into um, some of you mentioned modern instructional practices. Is, how, how does that um, tie into what you're talking about now with making that abstract concrete in, in some of the classroom climate? So I'll move to content that I actually know something about. <laughs> um, in social studies history zones, um, there's this push all across the spectrum where we're expecting teachers to either uh, perfect the blended classroom or to move from being teacher to facilitator. And where the ideas are there, where one-to-one -one devices have been purchased across districts, um, much money has been invested in making sure students have top-notch technology. There are some classrooms who have these vision boards where you can sync the students, the personal device to the board. The teacher can operate that board from their cell phone. There's so many options that are yeah. out there. Um, that have come from this one spark of utilizing technology to enhance learning. Great stuff. The problem is, however, though, that many of the teachers who are using these devices are ill-experienced in using them themselves. Mm -hmm. So um, we have teachers who are just learning how to use those boards for their own personal use, not only for student-driven instruction, um, or a teacher who's never used the actual computer device that the students are using. And so professional development, professional learning is um, quite essential in order to make sure that teachers have the resources that they need and the experience that they need to drive instruction. But let's talk about a little bit what that looks like. Mm -hmm. In a blended classroom, we're looking for this space where there are workshop models, where there are parallel instruction models going on, maybe even co-teaching um, with another instructor. And there's this embedding of technological principles that can take students to another space. So I always tell my teachers that, you know, we don't look at project-based learning as just a project. Mm -hmm. The purpose of project-based learning is to find a solution to a problem. And so if you're gonna teach students something simple, uh, maybe just as simple as the importance of potassium, not a science educator either. <laughs> but I know my periodic table, I'm looking for a K, and I know that there is um, 
some volatile um, reactions that can happen when it's put into a solution, it can burn. And now I'm looking for ways to think of how students might relate to it. It's in bananas. That's great. Now, that's the informational side. Yeah. What use is the element in our daily lives or how can it be used to perfect something that we have that needs to be uh, remedied in a sense? So uh, I brought this idea up to a student. I have no idea what I was talking about. I was just trying to jog thought. I said, so I don't know exactly which levels of sulfur or what prefix or suffix belongs with sulfur that comes from a match being burned. But I know it's something of that sort. What if we were able to transform our thinking to a space where we're using potassium instead? Is that healthier for the environment? Mm. Should we change what we like matches with? And that could be a way off the road, couldn't have anything to do with nothing uh, question. But all scientific questions are not developed for us to find the answer that we're looking for. Yeah. In our mistakes, we often find solutions to problems that we may have not even been looking for. Mm. So to have that ideology and to create an, uh, a space where students are looking at the research behind what happens when a, a, a match is lit and what is released from that match and what does that item or element do to the environment? What can we use to replace it and what is healthier for the environment? That's looking at a problem, creating a solution. Now we're gonna create diagrams, we're gonna look at computer-based devices that can be used to prove our point, um, have some type of uh, oral presentation prepared with a PowerPoint that you're not turning around reading, but using for reference to decide how can I communicate this to people? Elevator speeches that have been used in business. How yeah. can I use that to uh, express what I've learned and what I know? And taking students from, you know, having a basic knowledge about things to really becoming specialists in something. Yeah, being able to apply the knowledge. That, you know, if you, knowledge is great, but if, if knowledge is not applied, it, you know, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. So in your role as an assistant principal, how are you supporting teachers to um, implement these practices or strategies in the class? So I try to model exactly what I expect teachers to do with my students in the building. Um, mm. And I do say that with a sense of agency, my students, my teachers, mm. uh, because we are uh, collectively working to do what we need to do to meet the needs of our future generations. Um, I've had people tell me that they're concerned and I had some people tell me that they are pretty comfortable about our future. And so I try to model what needs to happen in a classroom in order to jog thought. So I'm always encouraging teachers to read. That's yeah. the first thing. Um, <laughs> the more you read, the more um, exposed you are to what's going on in society. Right now, um, I am uh, finishing, I'm not even reading an educational book. I'm reading, um, I think his name is E.J. James, it's called The Mister, right? And so it's just a book I'm reading, uh, not necessarily nothing to do with anything. Um, I finished James Comey's leadership book, which was amazing, by the way. Um, I've read Omarosa's book, um, the most recent book that she put out, and it was really good. And I'm still reading Becoming uh, from Michelle Obama. And so I will talk about certain excerpts from these books. And what I'm noticing is the conversation is sparking something in the teachers. I have another teacher who inspired another teacher and another teacher wow. to read coming. And so now we're like, 
what chapter are you on? Have you? Do you remember this? Did, did you? Did you see the part where mm. Michelle was kissing this gal on the bench, or did you see this part where she was in the back seat talking about her dad, and you know she was thinking about her uh, relative who lived in the house with them and could play piano, and the piano was raggedy. So we're not having this conversation and making it relative. So yeah. now that we talk about students who are not um, excelling in literacy, then now we know what to do. If this has sparked an interest in math teachers, in science teachers, and in social studies teachers who are not literacy-based teachers uh, by profession, yeah. that they want to read and have these discussions, then what should we do with our kids? We should get them so excited about the reading that they want to become a part of the conversation. Mm. And so um, that's just a small informal way of doing it, but there are some intentional ways uh, where I look for opportunities to um, have teachers engage with their cell phones and their computer devices in meetings to place questions on the board uh, versus mm -hmm. saying them out loud. They're anonymous, anonymously placed on the screen so that I can answer and they can um, ask without the uh, jitters or anxieties that come with that. Um, I also encourage them to come to sessions where I continually uh, give feedback about the use of assessment programs such as MAP, Illuminate, um, our Georgia Department of Education, usage of the DRC Insight, just small uh, uses that can be found in those score reports and how we can use that to create proper IEPs or talk about what students need um, who may not receive services and what can we use those. I mean, it's so great at this point that the reports that come back from the state for a child who takes a literature exam for the end of course test, it has suggestive readings on the report. Wow. So get them excited about reading to a point where they look at that report and see six, nine books there that they want to go read. Yeah. And so, yeah, to inspire is my first step, but to then model is the second. Right. Well, I, that, I think that's, thank you for making that so simple to, to inspire and to model. Um, those are, those are two simple practices, easy practices that I feel like everybody can use. I, I am curious, you, you've always wanted to be an educator, but you went a different route. Sociology, I study psychology. I know there's a difference between the two, but also a correlation of sociology and politics. How has your background in those two fields shaped who you are now as an educator? So um, I also teach uh, in academia. I teach political science as well. And uh, it's the most fun thing in the world, actually. I get to take the content, and particularly in uh, weeks where there's content geared toward education, mm -hmm. and I'm able to take the conversation further by engaging what I know and what I feel without mm -hmm. fully expressing what I believe. Right. Um, it's been really fun to look at the dynamics of um, Trumpism. Uh, I encourage people to look at um, videos that are placed out by the New School in Manhattan. Um, one that, of my favorite videos there is um, a video that's called The Austerity of Greece. It talks about um, the financial crisis that occurred there. Um, but there's also a guy, his name is Tim. I think it's, it's, my last name might be Ryan, but he's a researcher from Tennessee that has a video on YouTube that is called Trumpism, the age of Trump, Trump age of Trumpism, I'm sorry. And looking at politics in that light um, versus looking at the numbers and the data charts and the statistics that go along with it, but having a real conversation about what dynamics really exist between groups of people. 
How mm -hmm. has culture evolved? What causes individuals to have a sense of agency that allows them to even desire to be deviant in our culture? where there was this sense of togetherness, and if you did not align with that, you were silent with your disagreement. Um, that expression has now become an open space for people who seek to cause havoc to be able to speak out loud and do so uh, so um, boldly, so uh, brazen. And I look for those opportunities to discuss what politics mean uh, means to me, and how it should be translated to my students. What I found is in the college classroom, 200 students, uh, during the time where I spoke about voting in a local election, only 17 were inspired to actually go vote. Hmm. That's a small number. And it wasn't because they didn't want to, it's that they thought that they had not given themselves enough time to do the research about who they wanted to serve in local offices. Interesting. That's not really an excuse. Right. <laughs> documented everywhere. Everything they believe is something. Yeah. And because I teach in a predominantly Caucasian-based school, one of the most interesting pieces about that is teaching my students what politics looks like and political motivations look like when you're coming from an African-American Southern family. Mm. My experience. Yeah. Uh, I grew up where, you know, there's this dialogue where, you know, some people are for you, some are against you. You don't even listen to the other side. I grew up Pentecostal. So, you know, we didn't even believe Baptist people were going to heaven from where I grew up. Let's <laughs> so, long that we believe that we should be really engaging in um, politics. And if you didn't speak about the name of Christ, yeah. then, you know, you weren't even a contender. And so um, having that background and evolving into someone who can, look at a conversation, have dialogue, uh, be able to uh, be corrected and to correct myself, uh, has shown a lot of improvement over the years. But those individuals who are still there still have to struggle with what do I believe, when do I believe it, and how does that apply to the real world? Mm. Wow. And so that's what I teach. Yeah, yeah, that's impressive. That's impressive. That That's a, that's a fine, well, I would think that those you know, the teaching at the uh, college and in your high school administration, you can kind of feed off of each other kind of in a loop type of form or fashion or whatever. Um, I really like the way that you're, you're putting your experiences into the work. It kind of, um, I wouldn't say it gives, makes you, gives you less to work on or is, is easier, um, but I do think it makes it more real, more authentic. And that's some of the foundations of the, uh, the PBL project or, or problem-based learning as well. Now, when we think about some of the old practices in education, you know, we are finally starting to modernize education over the last 10, 15 years or so with the smart boards and the technology in class. But for a long time, education has been the only thing that has not changed. Um, so what are some of those older practices that are still useful today as we're modernizing moving forward? So uh, that's a weird question. I can cause a whole ruckus with my response. So I'm going to clean it up first. <laughs> um, the first um, illustration I'm going to use is this pipeline to prison mentality that we uh, perplexed and uh, perpetuated over time. Um, I always tell my sociology courses when I teach those, uh, which is rare, but I enjoy them, that the education system that I grew up in was similar to what happens in a prison environment, or at least what I perceive to happen in a prison environment. 
I wouldn't know, don't ever plan to find a guy. <laughs> um, so we tell students in elementary school, stand in line inside of your block, straight line, hand by, hands behind your back, be quiet, stay on your hallway. If you don't, I'm going to take you to the warden and you're going to end up in solitary confinement, ISS. Wow. That's the idea that we've looked at over time, and we thought compliance was the way to get people to become something. Well, what happened was it divided some students. Students like myself, I became fearful to a point where I did not go against the grain, and I did exactly what my teacher said every single time so that I never had to go see the assistant principal or the principal yeah. or the warden in this sense, or ever be placed in uh, confinement or ISS or be sent home uh, so that I would just stay out of trouble. So it worked for me. But for friends of mine who had the same experiences, same rules, same teachers, it did not work for them. Yeah. And they became um, a part of the culture to a point where it became identifiable. And one in particular that is in my mind, he cannot stay out of jail. So I wonder if he had a different experience, would that have changed his mentality about how society works? Wow. Now, the problem with that is in education, we go from one extreme of the spectrum to the other. So <laughs> we expect that to disappear and say that there should be no capital punishment in school and we take away you know, some of the perplexities of what the classroom uh, monitoring and behavior and teacher agency looks like. And then we move to this exploratory play, even in high school to a point where there are no real rules. And then we release them into a world that is filled with rules. I wish I could push my Camaro at 120 down 75. Probably should not do it because I'm probably going to end up in some nice bracelets that I cannot take off myself. You're going you're gonna to learn firsthand what that prison pipeline is. <laughs> exactly. So there, is, there has to be a divide between whether there are rules and what those rules look like versus what we used to do. And my thing is, I believe that we should hold on to expectations. Hmm. Expectations set a guideline for what we want to happen and often gives us an opportunity to talk about how to achieve what we desire out of that um, outcome. I look at expectations currently uh, as teachers outline what they want their students to do and how they want the year to roll out. Yeah. Teachers who did not communicate that information with us per se back in the day, they still had expectations and we would meet them as they came. We didn't have a rule that you couldn't take a pencil out in the middle of a test, but if the teacher created that rule, then that's the expectation. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that sense of agency, we're gonna have to find where that middle ground is between our old practices and our modern practices. And as we evolve, I remember the first time I tried to cheat on a spelling test back in <laughs> second grade, I had a glasses case. It was my first year wearing glasses. And I wrote as small as I could on a little small sheet of paper and put it inside my glasses case. <laughs> Didn't I get caught? It was the best idea ever. Now they are texting the answers. They are actually airdropping answers in class. Right. So we can no longer attack cheating in classrooms the way you would look for that small sheet of paper. Yeah. How do you, how do you uh, defend that? How do you, that I, I haven't thought about it, like you bringing up all kinds of stuff. Well, you, 
you do strategic things. Like for instance, when I was a teacher, um, I, I had people killing themselves laughing about this. I just had certain practices that I remember my teachers doing that I adopted and made them modern. For instance, when it was time to turn in homework, my teachers did not say, put your homework in the basket on your way out. Mm -hmm. They didn't say, put your homework in the basket on your way in. That was not the practice. They would give us our independent work after they finished teaching, my teachers did. And they would call us up one by one to turn in our homework. Do you know the anxiety that happens when you're sitting there and you know you don't have your homework and your last name is next? And what I vowed was that I would never be called on again and not have my homework. And she wouldn't say anything but call my name and put the grade in if I didn't come. And that small practice I adopted when I became a teacher, I told my students, I will not overwhelm you with homework for no reason. If I give it to you, it's because you really need it and I really need to review with you something that I want to confirm you know or whether I need to reteach it. And so I would call them one by one. And because we're an electronic generation, my students would pick up their cell phones and they would literally sit there as I put the grades in. And if I called your name and you didn't come, I would click save and open the campus. And then it go ding. You see it in their cell phones, zeros calculated. Wow. And that would get them to start doing the work. It was, I call it reverse psychology. That's pretty good. I never sat in the, the side area of my classroom. I always sat in the front. And if I need to move around, I move around. But my desk would be stationed at the front um, because I needed to sit sideways so I could always see their behaviors and their actions at all times. Yeah. Never turned my back on my students. And just looking, you know, they many of them don't know anything about peripheral vision. I could be reading a paper and looking at them as I'm reading and say, please stop. And they're looking around like, how did he know? <laughs> and that's what you want to create in your classroom, yeah. this space where you're the, you know, the magician, you're the mystical person that yeah. we can't quite figure out, but we really want to learn what you know. So, so I see you, you really are pushing the envelope. One, I want to highlight um, kind of a phrase or a takeaway that I have from what you just said, basically, um, expectations over compliance, right? Um, that that was that was a key takeaway from something you said uh, earlier about like the the changes in education. But you you're, you're pushing the envelope in a way because like put the homework in a box. You know, a lot of the the PBL kind of models to learning in the new blended or um, what was the other term blended or facilitation type of models talks about putting students in charge and meaning letting them be autonomous put your homework here so the teacher isn't collecting the work, they're just facilitating the conversation. But you're kind of flipping it on its head in some ways. And I feel like you're still getting to the same point of uh, building autonomy. Oh, shoot, I got a zero. I need, th there's the felt need. Yeah, I think that's, that's the correct word. You're putting the felt need into the students in a different way that's uh, kind of contrary to some of the, the modern teaching practices. So you kind of, it, this is, it's, I'm putting this together as I'm saying it out loud. You, you've got the modern experiences which you're using, but you're using it from the historical context that you kind of grew up with. So it's new and old school put together. That's, that's really interesting to me. That's really interesting to me. Um, let me, oh, can you go back to the teachers for a minute? Okay. And you said something about uh, teachers are expected to master blended learning or becoming a facilitator in the classroom. Can can you go more in depth on that? And, and what do you think about the, those types of models? 
Well, um, I, I really exemplify what I, is what I look for in blended classrooms by the examples that I've uh, mentioned uh, previously, because it causes you to dance around both spectrums and see exactly which one works for your students. Right. So there's gonna be a, a lot of variations to how that's played out, um, but teachers having the ability to utilize the technology, particularly to replace small items where we would have used time um, that could have been valuable for more learning, um, mm -hmm. I feel like they are, they are essential. One of my favorite things to do um, while when I was teaching was to walk around with an iPad and monitor their essays as they're writing. I could watch it live um, mm -hmm. from my device. And so that made it easier for me to make corrections. And also it kept them on task because you, well, I think the students mastered that if my icon popped up in their <laughs> And I was actually reading their essay. <laughs> so I think they mastered that part. But in the beginning, they didn't know whether I was reading their essay or someone else's as I was walking around monitoring. I could put notes on there and type them faster than I could if I were writing. Mm -hmm. um, that also gave me a time to uh, look at, I had this strategy that I call um, the Moore series. Um, I adopted it from a close friend who is in Arizona. And I brought it back and put it to use in my schools. And so what it does is it has three workshop settings, write more, think more, speak more. And so you put them in rotating workshops. Let's say they may, in a 90-minute period, um, they may change every 30 minutes. And so one of those groups would be intentionally set up to be a technological engagement um, activity. So that might be the write more, where they're typing um, mm -hmm. responses. Uh, it might be in think more, where they're doing research. Or it might be in speak more, where they're creating some type of dialogue, conversation, translation, video, whatever is necessary. So you could use it to blend the models together in one setting. So that's how I look for um, blending models to succeed. On the other end, where teachers become facilitators, it's quite essential that if you decide that's the model that works for you, that you master uh, preparing intentional workshopping um, in your classroom. Because there has to be tiered instruction that exists in small groups that allow for flexibility and you having the ability to conference with students as you need to. So those paradigms in, in both settings, they both pose a challenge for teachers, but it depends on how much work you want to do on the beginning. On, on the front end. If you desire to create seven variations of one quiz, uh, one that might exist as a writing prompt that gives you the same information that multiple choice questions give you, if that's the type of work you're willing to put in the beginning, then you might work best in a workshop setting where you serve as facilitator and you can move around right. and kind of the instructional practices. But if not, then you might want to stick to the traditional models of providing those um, those small group lessons after you've done a whole group instruction practice. And then use technology to enhance the learning versus mm -hmm. drive the learning. Mm -hmm. uh, so I always tell teachers you have to find out what works for you. And because I'm in a high school, um, new teachers get a chance to take two different semesters with different classes and different students. And that gives them the flexibility of saying first semester didn't work, so I want to try something else. Or first semester did work, and I want to try something else anyway. Um, so that model exists for me, but elementary teachers and some middle school teachers, they don't get that opportunity. Right, right. Well, I think that's a, that's a good point. And, and really, 
Um, it, you have you have to do use the practices that are going to work best for you. Everybody's not going to be able to use the same um, interventions with students or the same type of facilitation. My facilitation and your facilitation might look differently. It's not in a box, like we said earlier as well. It's more of that growth mindset. It's changing. It's evolving. It's doing what works best for you and your students. And what, I would say that also, too, that speaks to what administrators should be doing properly with their teachers. Mm. Evaluate them, uh, particularly in state-driven systems. The conversation before placing an evaluation in should be: What was the value in what you were doing? Because I may not see it, I may not understand it. Uh -huh. But before I score you as an educator, I should at least look to see if there's been some thought, some research, um, some analysis that has gone into the practices that you have adopted, and see if it's something that I can grow to respect or learn or help you grow within. Mm -hmm. um, often I see administrators we look at teachers and expect them to remodel what we have done and that doesn't always set up the best school environment or yeah. it might work for your classroom your students may not fear you at all <laughs> so you may not be able to walk out of the classroom go to the restroom and come back like I can so mm -hmm. <laughs> whatever you have to do to decide what your classroom culture should look like and how you shape that and how does that drive the instructional practices within your room Administrators have to be able to have those conversations with teachers to say, I see some value in what you're doing. That's really powerful. That's really powerful. Checking for that evidence. I mean, it's kind of, it's same way we talk about tiered um, models for our teachers to use with students. As administrators, you know, the, the teachers are our students in a way. Um, you know, we have to be able to model and practice and we need to see the evidence, check for understanding, all those type of things with teachers the same way teachers are doing with their students that, that's that's good now tell me chris any anything else that you want to touch on you've been dropping gems the the whole episode is there anything else that you want to touch on i know um you did want to mention restorative practices as well is there anything on that or anything else you want to hit on i would like to close my thoughts on um preparing students for their future endeavors um, i grew up in fort valley georgia which is peach county the middle of nowhere there's nothing but a school bus um, manufacturing company there and some peaches <laughs> that are on trees all over the place and um, we had pecans or pecans depending where you're from how you pronounce that <laughs> so um, I grew up in a small community where my teachers kind of attended Fort Valley State University or other local HBCUs and um, I was a top performing student. I wasn't at the very, very tip top of my class, but I was in that top group of performers. And what I had to experience um, going into college was feeling unprepared. Mm. I was a model student where I came from and then went into a real college classroom and felt unprepared. And some of the things that I wish I had known was that certain schools in some states didn't charge out of state tuition if you were close enough or that you could have earned a scholarship for various reasons. And I would encourage educators all around the world to have those conversations with their students. Tell them what you know and what you wish you had known. Mm. Because you never know what you might spark in a child that's going to change their lives. I have a current student now who is graduating. Um, she had the top SAT score in our school. Um, so she was given um, the principal's award and superintendent's award. Uh, she just received a full ride to Cornell University. Wow. And I'm so proud of her. But the first thing she told me was that Harvard and Cornell were her two options and yeah. that she couldn't share them with people because the people that she had shared them with prior to discussing it with me had spoken it down. 
and told her that wasn't a good idea. Wow. And I've never been to Cornell, but I want her to go. And so as you have those conversations um, with students, don't always speak from where you are and where you've been, but speak to them as you wish for them to become, because yeah. you never know what you might say or what you might do that might inspire them to become great. Mm. Amen. That That's great. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for your time. Where, where can the people find you at? Where, how can we get more of these nuggets and information? Well, I'm on Twitter. Um, it is Brian Chris Reese, uh, B-R-Y-A-N-C-H-R-I-S-R-E-E-S-E. I am also on LinkedIn. You can search me as Brian Chris Reese separately. And um, it's hilarious, uh, but my Instagram uh, is, uh, I, I want to say it is uppity African, uppity underscore African. <laughs> <laughs> Someone had already taken African American, so I took uh, African. So follow me on either of those, and you'll see me drop nuggets every now and then about my ideologies and practices in education. All right, that's perfect. That's perfect. Thank you so much for your time and 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 putting so much knowledge and information. You sparked the thoughts in my mind today, and I I highly appreciate that. Some of the one of the benefits of having a podcast is I have an excuse to talk to some of the best educators in the nation, in the region, um, and in multiple states. So I, I thank you so much for challenging me to learn more, grow more, and think more. What is it, speak more, do more? What was it? <laughs> it's write more, think more, speak more. Write more, think more, speak more. I appreciate that. And thank you for listening as well to the Dash Podcast. This episode is sponsored by the Gamers Consulting Group. Um, to learn more about the Dash Podcast, you can visit TreyGamers.com, and you can listen to this episode on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn. You can catch the links on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm always at Trey Gamers. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time. This is The Dash.